folks, this is Jason from The High Route to intro episode 8 of The High Route Podcast. In this episode, we run through most of it with Lynn Wolf. How Wolf left Tennessee for Wyoming, forged her path, and became a leader and a sought-after mentor for countless backcountry aspirants. In the realm of avalanche education, Wolf is revered. Her bio on the A3, or American Avalanche Association, says she began working at the Avalanche Review in 2002 and became the chief editor in 2006. The Avalanche Review is a quarterly focusing on snow safety, and for any winter backcountry user, it remains a solid resource under Lynn's guidance. All this is to say that we have a one of a kind on the show and we are proud to have her as a guest. And if you are unfamiliar with Wolf, buckle up. Okay, I'll take a minute to interrupt the intro as we do here regularly to plug our reader supported website, The High Route, where our simple mission is to cover human powered turn making in the backcountry. Listen up for the site address because we have hyphens in the name. It's the-high-route.com. One more time, the-high-route.com. And hyphen is definitely not spelled out. It's just a dash between the words. Our podcasts are free, yet are not free to produce or host on a server. If you are enjoying our podcast, please consider supporting the site. That's it for the plug. And if you hear a small dog playing with a ball in the background during this intro, that is our mascot, Riley. Now it's on to the show featuring Lynn Wolf, where we discuss how she pivoted and began thinking about herself as a mentor. Thanks. At what point in your career... Did you sort of pivot and are like, wow, I guess I'm at the age or have the experience where I can mentor folks? When I was working for Knowles back in the 90s as one of the early program supervisors in the Rocky Mountain Branch office, um, at the same time I was doing that, I also landed a job as the what was it called? It was like the women's program liaison. And I might not have been the first person to do it, but I stepped into that job and did a ton of outreach with uh, women coming in on uh, instructor's courses, you know, like, uh, like, what are you worried about? What do you need some conversation about? You know, let's look at you know, where your resume might be thick and where you might need to go grab some more experience. And so, I mean, that was back in the 90s. I mean, not that I had so much experience, but I certainly had more than these people coming into Knowles. And there was one donor at Knowles, and I'm not sure if I ever knew his name, but he was adamant He'd had a woman instructor on one of his mountaineering courses, and he was like, this woman made a huge difference in my experience, you know, having a mixed instructor team, and whatever I can do to empower women to be as awesome as whoever this was. 
on my course. And so he donated some money, and I I really felt that that experience that that was that was really important. And I'm like, okay, what can I do? I remembered back to my own experience in '85 when I went and took the instructor's course, and you know I had some great theories and some ideas, but I I'm not sure I had concept on how to come in strong and how to come in comfortable, you know, because if you're uncomfortable and you're lacking in self-confidence, that's when you act out. That's when you're a pain in the ass in any group, because then there's this power differential and you have to keep trying to prove yourself. Oh, I hate dealing with those sorts of things. And I, but I empathize with these people. And so like, all right, what can, what can I do to make you come in comfortable in your own skin? What would be some of the like, I'm not a best of person or a top five or bullet list type person, but what are some of the strategies that you would employ to like bring someone in and empower them to, so that they are comfortable like that? Sometimes it's as easy as just let's have a conversation about what the program is about and what the program's going to be and how the structure is going to be and how you're going to be asked to show who you are and what you do. And once people solve for the unknown, there's a little bit more like, okay, I know what to expect. And so I know how deep to dig into myself. And so just having conversations is huge for some people. Um, Maybe even doing prescriptive work, like, oh, you might want to go work on your climbing anchors, or you'd be a great candidate for, we did these, I forget what they were called, but these women's rock and leadership seminars for a little while there in the, in the 90s. I think we would do them for incoming instructor course folks, and for younger women instructors, like let's let's just go climbing for three days and let's work on anchors, let's work on leading. And some of the most important stuff was actually the subtext. Like let's have conversations with each other. Let's see who is succeeding at being an instructor and what are their skill sets and how comfortable and confident they are. <laughs> and it, it tended to work pretty well. One year, we, my friend Sue Miller and I, we worked one of them, and it, it kind of worked too well. And the women on this instructor's course, they came in as this phalanx into this group, and they were almost, you know, if, if women are too tight and put up too many defenses, then there's this separation Whereas on a true positive backcountry experience, you're, you know, there's, there's understanding of gender, but it's more like, oh, instead of you being male or female, it's like, okay, you have a masculine leadership style and perhaps you should incorporate more feminine in your leadership and communication style. I mean, that's my deal. You know, I succeeded in the guide world back in the 80s. You know, I had a great time, but I learned to, you know, to come in hard. 
you know, and I worked so hard behind the scenes, you know, I want to be really good at setting up anchors, really good at climbing, you know, really good at teaching. I'm sure you're not the first, and I know that you're certainly not the last to experience that dynamic or maybe feel compelled to like present yourself a certain way um, to be perceived as a leader, an expert, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm not a real believer of fake it till you make it. I'm more of a believer of do the work. Do the work, and then once you are comfortable and confident in your own skin, then, and this is how I I feel like I am now, and this is the advice that I give to younger guides, incoming women guides that I, I mentor I used to do a bit more at Exum, but, you know, not being a guide any longer, there's less opportunity, but it's be yourself, be yourself and your comfort and your confidence and your sense of humor will just shine through. Okay. So let's take a step back in terms of being yourself. That's a good pivot point. Um, who are you? You are, uh, revered for sure in the avalanche education world. And we're going to get to that, but maybe give us a little bit of background about who you are, where, yeah. And where are you? Oh, Jason, yeah, I'm, an, I'm a nice, beginning. I'm a nice Southern Jewish girl. Southern, like where, where? Nashville, Tennessee. I grew up in Nashville in a reformed Jewish household. My dad's a doctor. My mom was a homemaker who did volunteering. But at a young age, I think at 15, maybe, I yeah, 1976, I got sent out west. I was always, I was kind of too smart for my own good. But uh, I think that junior high, I figured out that I could also be an athlete. And that was huge. It took me out of my shyness and gave me a lot of comfort and confidence. And then when I was 15, I got sent out west to the Wind Rivers for three weeks and climbed for the first time. Freaking blew my mind. You know, the winds, the climbing. I came back and wrote a little thing for my school newspaper called On Belay. And I was like, all right, I think my life just took this turn and we'll call it to the left. Because <laughs> I was like, well, all I want to do now is climb. And so I did as much as I could in the summers. Um, I went to Duke for three semesters and worked in their, uh, what is it, Project Wild Wilderness Initiatives for Learning and Development. And I met this woman who had just come from taking a null semester and she talked about the climbing and she talked about the instructors and talked about the program. And I remember this very clearly saying to myself, not so much to her, but that's what I want to do. I want to be a Knowles instructor. And I might have asked her about it. And, th and so this is back in the 90s. And it was quite hard to get into the instructor's course. And I said, that's, that's what I want to do. That's who I want to be. And uh, then I dropped out of college and uh, a bunch of circumstances. I, I wasn't ready to be in school. I would have been a great 
candidate for a gap year had there been such a thing at the time. But uh, I came out, took a null semester, and I knew when I came out to take this semester that I was going to stay. You know, I remember packing my stuff. And I'm like, I'm packing my favorite shirt because I'm not going to come back to Tennessee. This is it. And so I took this semester, and I remember writing in my journal, I still have it, God knows where somewhere, that I want to be impeccable. Yeah, it's a kind of a big thing to share that because at, you know, 19 years old, that's how on earth did I have the vision to, to know that? You know, that I wanted to act impeccably. And so I came out. That's a pretty moving, that's a profound statement. I've never heard that phrased like that, but I, that's really resonating. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Perfect word to describe probably how you move in the mountains. Yeah. I mean, God knows I make plenty of mistakes, but to me that means sure. having a library of skills and then this is the, this is the phrase that I think has carried with me and I'll tell you a funny story about it too, but it's pay attention. Pay attention and know when to pay attention. You know, it's exhausting if you're trying to pay attention all the time and you don't know what to pay attention to. But I think in my instruction, which is, you know, when you're instructing others, you're really talking about the things that are important to you yourself, right? Or else you don't have really any leg to stand on. But I think that my instruction really pivots around helping people to sharpen their question. And you note that I'm always doing this. I mean, that, that's to me, that's the sharpening motion is, and it's part of this hypothesis testing is figure out what type, what's the appropriate hypothesis and then how are you going to test it? You know, like watching, you know, Cowboy is, Brett Kobernick, having him come as a guest instructor on a, uh, uh, Knowles Professional Avalanche Seminar and being right behind him going up Wimpy's over in the on the east side of the Tetons and watching how Cowboy moved in the mountains and how he'd do a hand shear over here and maybe get his shovel out here. I'd be like, Cowboy, what are you what are you looking at? And he'd say, I'm looking at the relationship between the slab and the weak layer. I'm like, oh, mind blown, mind blown, learned a lot, boom, explosion, great. And so learning how to refine those questions, what to pay attention to. If I can teach people even the beginnings of that concept, then I'm succeeding. I mean, it sounds like in some capacity, you have been in that, you know, that when I, well, what do you, there's Jackson Hole, obviously, Teton Valley would be on the, I always confuse it, but I think the west side of the Tetons. Yep. Um, yep. So you've been there a long time and made a life for yourself. So you've been in sort of become this iconic person in the avalanche community. I think that's fair to say. Um, and uh, for, for good reason, from what I gather, for very good reason. 
So, but I'm curious, like, how did you sort of establish yourself? One is like, um, I want to deeply invest in avalanche outreach and avalanche education and promotion of best practices and so forth. Um, How did you sort of begin to really focus on that? I wouldn't say, that's a great question, Jason. I wouldn't say that I had those outcomes in my mind when I first uh, started with the Avalanche Review. You know, my involvement with the Avalanche Review, I saw it in the Knowles Library when it was still this folded newsprint format. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I I had been uh, teaching uh, backcountry ski courses, winter courses for Knowles, teaching a little bit of avalanche education. And this thing was like, this is aimed at me. This I, wa- I want this. I need this. Um, I'm going to subscribe to this. I want this in my brain. I want this in my mailbox. <laughs> and uh, I became a, a huge supporter of TAR before I even knew it was, you know, before we started calling it TAR. And then at ISSW 2002 in Penticton, see, this is how I order my life, as I remember when all the ISSWs were and what happened at them. I was, I had made friends with Blaze Reardon, who was the, uh, um, at the time, the only TAR employee, and uh, we're sitting next to each other in this, um, it was at the time AAAP, um, American Association of Avalanche Professionals, which was deemed to be too much of a mouthful. And anyway, somebody's up front talking and talking and talking, and I've got a couple beers in me, and I give Blaze this elbow in the side, and I'm like, that guy needs to be edited. And Blaze, with a couple beers in him, says, what do you know about editing? And, you know, classic Glenn, I'm like, I'm a good editor. I'm a good editor. You give me a chance. And so he did. You know, I, I'd had a, a had grammar drilled into me in high school. I was a national merit semifinalist and got AP English and blah, 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 blah. I went to this all-girls private school in Nashville and... So I did quite well in English, and I could diagram sentences, God help me. And um, anyway, the grammar part was is comes easily to me, and so I could really focus on the message and focus on helping people clarify what they were trying to say. And so I became the assistant editor to Blaze. He gave me all the what's new stuff and the like the little piddly stuff that he didn't want to do. Um, and then at ISSW 04 in Jackson, I remember Blaze and I walked around the posters session, and it was right when we were starting to talk about all these different insights into decision-making and human factors. You know, there was stuff from like Laura Adams, Ian Stewart-Patterson, you know, some people who now we realize are really following the pulse or leading the pulse of where where we should be talking as an industry. And uh, so Blaze and I came, we asked a bunch of those people to write up their posters, and we had our first themed issue. So 
04, that must have been like spring of 05, and we had the April issue be a decision-making theme. And we did our first um, editorials. We had to ask Russ Johnson and the the AAAP board, like, do you think it would be okay if we wrote editorials? And they were they were like, whatever you want to do, go for it. And so we, we asked these, we tied these things together um, and asked a bunch of questions of our readership. And then lo and behold, that summer, I think like June, in both of our inboxes came this essay from Ed LaChapelle. And this is, this is the Ascending Spiral essay. And it's in many ways an, a response to our request for feedback in that editorial. You know, if you look at it carefully, you'll see how he's like ticking off points back to us. And and we were both like, oh my God, you know. Um, and it gave me great hope for our, I always say industry slash community because I think that's one of the real special things about the avalanche industry is that we're still small enough to be an integrated community. You know, like at ISSW, the people with large brains, they'll, you can go up and ask them questions in the halls. Like, hey, I didn't quite understand. Can you explain? And, you know, Carl Berkland, he'll say, oh, here's a way to look at this. And so there's that integrated access and I thought that was fabulous and how to perpetuate that. And so Blaze brought me on then as a co-editor. And then maybe a year later, he went to grad school in, Mont- in uh, Missoula. And he asked me, do you want this? You know, or should we advertise for this? Do you want it? And I'm like, oh, no, I want, I want this. You know, I know it's a shit ton of work, but I can see this being a really cool avenue for me. And so I'd say that my understanding of our mission and what I was trying to accomplish didn't happen like bingo all of a sudden. It's evolved over time. And here it is, 2023. You know, I've been doing this for, you know, 20, 21 years, and I'm starting to realize you know, as I'm thinking, oh, I need to get some help in here. You know, I need a young Lynn to take over the what's new and and this stuff that I don't want to do anymore. I'm realizing that the thing that I'm thriving on is the ability for me to connect with my authors on an intellectual and personal level, you know, to read their you know, when they, they pitch a story or they send me a draft, that that process is just as important as what comes out of the printer and ends up in your mailbox, is that that connection where that person feels valued and gets the right question to help grow their question and grow their process that that's what I thrive on. For folks that are maybe unfamiliar with the Avalanche Review, 
known as tar. How would you describe it to them and why might it be a resource? Rather than trying to describe it, I would give you a copy and I would say, here, thumb through this and see what catches your interest. You know, maybe you like avalanche porn, you know, these half-page photos of amazing crowns. Maybe you like the stories about the people. Maybe you like the stories about decision-making. Maybe you're a, a science geek and you want to be challenged with the science. You know, I, I keep my science, even though I have ISSW presentations, I, I tell people who are going to showcase their ISSW work in TAR, I say, think about those college classes called Physics for Poets, right? And I say, that's our audience. You know, in my mind, our audience is an advanced recreationist or a third-year patroller or maybe a first or second year forecaster, or someone who's just getting into avalanche education. So I don't have to explain what an ECT is, but at the same time, I will explain how we interpret those results because we might be changing that. So I, I basically I say, if you're interested in avalanches, then you'll probably find something that uh, sparks you in the pages of our. And we're not concluding this interview, but how do people find the tar? Oh, <laughs> how, how might they subscribe? That's sort of like always the last question. So oh. how might we find you at linwolf.com? Oh, God. Um, the best way to find the Avalanche Review is we're, we are subscription only. We thought about trying to have some on newsstands, but nobody wanted to deal with it. And it's uh, if you go to AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org, um, or even you can even get there through avalanche.org, um, pull down publications, and there we are. Yeah, there you go, folks. Okay, so here's here's a little bit of it. So <laughs> our first our first interaction, right? I think uh, I I forget like if I reached out to you or you. Oh, I think I had done some sort of piece with, oh my God, I'm horrible with names. The excellent, I love his avalanche reports, uh, runs the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center. Uh, with Chabot and Chabot. Yeah, Chabot. Chabot, Chabot. mentioned um, the slope ankle research oh, that yeah. Perla had yeah, done. Exactly. And, uh, I just wanted, and I put a comment in there. I was like, bravo, your conversation with Chabot. And you guys should know that Perla is still alive and well and still very, very sharp. Um, lives up in Canmore. And uh, I, I've had, oh, maybe the last maybe 10 years or so, I've had this fascination with avalanche, the history of our avalanche industry. And I've been working on this avalanche history project off and on. First, I was going to write a book. And uh, then I realized that there was way too much material. And so now we're working on putting together a website. You know, it gets subsumed by the day-to-day -day work at uh, A3. But I think ultimately it's going to happen. And it's going to be, you know, these interviews that I did with some of these amazing guys. But I, I showed up at Perla's door maybe 
eight years ago, I think we had just done a WAPTA traverse and show up in Canmore, you know, I definitely called ahead and turns out he had like called a couple, a couple of his buddies and gotten a reference for me. And uh, so I show up on his door, he opens his door, I swear to God, he looks like Rasputin, you know, he's got these bushy eyebrows and he kind of growls at me and I'm like, fuck, this guy's terrifying. And so it's, you know, nine o'clock in the morning and we go in and we go up the stairs in their condo and Perla's wife, Gretchen, is working at the computer and she kind of looks over at him and she says, offer the young lady something to drink, Ron. And so we go up into the kitchen and I'm still like, how am I going to start this interview? And I say to him, you got any whiskey? Because I'm like, this is the only thing that's going to give me that, you know, whiskey kick a kick courage. And so here I am drinking, I think, like Maker's Mark at the kitchen table with Perla at, you know, 930 in the morning. I'm like, okay, this is all right. And we end up being like great friends. And I spend the whole day with him. We go out to dinner with him. And bingo, I've got a friend a friend, a colleague, and he certainly hasn't lost any of his incisive intelligence. You know, he's my greatest friend and my greatest critic, which I value better than someone who's a yes man. And and so we we had this I don't haven't seen it happen lately, this long standing email chain with Perla and Don Bachman, who's grown quite frail, and uh, Art Judson Judd, who has since passed away, and Dale Atkins, who's become a dear friend. And it was all these things when an accident would happen that were definitely not suited for prime time that I would not want to share. You know, these guys are like fucking stupid. You know, these 80-year-old guys like fucking stupid. And I just I adored it. And it was really fun to be part of that. I felt really honored. Um, and so they let me in and they let me, they knew that I respected them, but didn't respect them like a, oh, but like, huh, you got something to say. And so, you know, Perla answers my emails and, that's how you and I and Perla got connected. It's part of this greater fabric of a relationship that I'd been valuing and cultivating for a number of years that I thought he would be pleased to see that his work is still being uh, valued. I would say I'm often not uh, inhibited talking to anyone, in particular, someone who might be like revered in the community. You know, if it's like you're, you're interviewing a pro athlete, you know, if you're in the mountains long enough, you've, you've run into these people in the mountains doing your own thing. And they're just regular people. And you share the common love of like moving through the hills. Uh, but there was something about, I was like, ooh, Lim Wolf, okay, gotta, gotta buckle down here. Well, you can't take yourself too seriously, or else when you fuck up, which 
as a human you invariably do, then you look even more stupid. And if you just set this example of, yeah, I've been around, I know some things, but I'm also vulnerable, I'm also able to screw up, but I own that shit. What a great model to push out. And, you know, I just did this pro trainers workshop for A3 with all these people who want to teach in the pro program. And people are like, oh, I'm in a, I'm in a breakout room with Lynn. I'm like, stop it. You know, you guys are the future of this industry. I want you to stand on my shoulders. You know, you stand on my shoulders, then you're going to go even further. And so it's, it's a long process to have ego, to kind of rejoice in your ego and to be really proud of your achievements, but then to become you know, 60 years old and to be like, like I do on pro courses, like, okay, if you set the pace where you ditch me, I'm going to translate that to myself as you don't care to listen to what I have to offer, you know? And so I'm trying to set this tone of humor, strength, and vulnerability because uh, fuck man i am 62 almost three and you know i need help getting up you know i'll let you take your damn turn breaking trail it's like great it's great to be heard but now it's my turn if if i'm talking to then start highlighting not just the personalities but what sort of cool thoughts and concepts are these people bringing to the table you reference like, yeah, we've all f fucked up and you want to own it. But I'm curious. I think that, um, you know, there's oftentimes this notion of people presenting themselves as like the avalanche wizard and they, they know more than someone else and they can kind of magically sniff the snow and decipher like, okay, we should avoid this and ski that. And, you know, that that's to me is a myth. What has been your biggest, quote, fuck up in the mountains when it comes to avalanches? There was an incident. I actually have written a fair amount about it up on the south face of Mount Taylor. I think it might have been 08. But I, um, someone triggered the south face from the wind-loaded side because they were trying to get trigger a little pocket of wind slab and it stepped down to facets at the ground and John Fitzgerald and I were up there and we'd been skiing the other side of the bowl and for six months probably I mean, and we watched the thing go by us in these waves. I think we ended up being called a 3.5, and we ended up having to <clears throat> go down the debris and, you know, look for signals, and it, thank God, didn't catch anyone. You know, it wasn't us that triggered it, but we were up there, 
and I slowly, even in the process of writing this story for Tar, uh, called Taylor Musings, I had to acknowledge to myself that maybe I shouldn't have been up there that day. You know, Carl Birkeland said that sometimes you end up on the other side of the line and you don't always realize it until afterwards. And I had to, I had to own that. Like, oh, yeah, maybe I didn't have enough margin. I might not have had the vocabulary to talk about it at the time, but you know, I, I continue to go back and look at that incident, and I, I tried to take a pretty unvarnished look at it and look at the different issues that it brought up, and hopefully that set a bit of an example because I also referred to snowy torrents and why we should look at this stuff, and that's, yeah, so... I mean, I didn't fuck up so bad that somebody got hurt and died, but I sure did get this zen smackdown is what I call it. Maybe you shouldn't try to outsmart the avalanche problems. <laughs> yeah. that's. I think I know of that. I've read quite a bit about, I've read your story. I know that. I feel like I know that incident. We're talking about the same incident where, Again, I can edit this out, but someone who knew, I think they were making a ski cut. I forget exactly what was going on, but it was someone who was like very well, you know, an experienced person who ended up cutting it. And there was quite, oh my gosh, some of the forum comments that went on for pages, forget where they were, but I actually looked this up within the past, like a couple of years, just to read. I don't know how it was on, on uh, Teton AT. Oh, that's where, right. It's on the Teton AT site. comments were. Yep, that's right. Yep, yep. that was, uh, boy, what are, uh, yeah, I love, that. one is that's an awesome site. And one is that, I'll, I'll link to that. I think that's a really good, yeah, educational read for folks. What would you say to people about empowering them to share their stories, their accident stories, and feel like they're not going to get judged? so that we get that kind of good information. Or maybe that's not a problem in your world. Maybe you feel like, no, I feel like people share all the time. Yeah. All right, let me let me go ahead and answer because of course it's not the case here in the Tetons. The, the Tetons are kind of well known as being quite critical and not being open about this stuff and lots of sniping behind the scenes. And this is one of the things I've been really working towards, you know, working with the uh, the people who have been doing snowy torrents. And um, we did an accident analysis uh, issue of the Avalanche Review a number of years ago and talked about this. And I, this is one of my current themes that I've been thinking about a lot is how do you change culture? And I think that that's what it has to take is a, is a shift in culture. And I'm not sure how you shift culture and I, but I have some ideas and I think it takes central people like me 
and central places like Wysaw, like the Abbey Night that we just had in um, uh, in Jackson, where, oh my God, I don't know if they recorded it, but it's so fabulous, where I moderated this storytelling panel where people got up and talked about me being caught in avalanches. And it takes some central people to say, hey, I screwed up. Here's what happened. Here's what I could do next time. Here's what I missed. Um, and to push that culture of sharing. And I think, you know, that Sherpa Cinema film does it in a way that uh, really reaches into a lot of corners in our industry. Um, boy, I see Jamie Weeks at uh, um, the... Uh, what are the, it's the IPRW International Pro Writers Workshop talking about mental health, talking about owning your shit. And so if we change a person or a demographic at a time and we start owning our stuff, perhaps the culture will change. And I'll be watching and, and not watching objectively, watching subjectively because I want and think we as a as a culture need this ha- need this to happen yeah 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 it's just interesting it's something i think a lot about that culture piece is hard to figure out and that culture piece is hard to sort of pivot around and make people feel like they're not going to be judged um even posthumously Right? It's like you're not going to be judged. Like, we need all this information to make a, well, an assessment. The yeah. avalanche centers are central to this um, in whether they do and how they um, investigate accidents. And we've had a sea change here in the Tetons in the last year. Um, Jackson is so funny this way in the Tetons. We're very resistant to change. You know, we bitch and bitch and bitch about the old format, but then when we switch to the new format, people are, I can't find my stuff. I can't find my this and that, and I don't really like the guy who's the forecast center director, um, but we're on the new NAC platform. Uh, like, suck it up, cupcake, you know? Get come into this millennium all right and uh this year i'm not really hearing any of this this year i'm hearing oh wow look at this great observations platform which we had last year um look how easy it is to find and wow look at our forecasters who were going out and putting up observations look at this really thoughtful and uh well done um, fatality investigation of the one fatality we had last year that our center director did. And so, you know, poor Frank, he, he's, he went through the fire last year, but this year he's, he's got an amazing team and, you know, they're right in there with, you know, they've got a regular center, we've got a regular friends group. It's, it's like, whew, huge relief, on with the work. But the tone with which the accidents are investigated and presented is huge to how a community sees those accidents. 
And I think if you look at the most recent snowy torrents, Blaze and Spencer, they even went through each of the accidents and you'll see out to the side, little call out, no beacon, no rescue gear, you know, traveling solo. And so they've gone through and actually analyzed all of these accidents and they have a table in the back where you're like, okay, how many of each of these did they have? And things like that are key to our culture shifting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can't avoid accidents. Accidents are, you know, as reason says, they're normal, you know, shit happens, but it's what do we have in place in order to not make more than one or two mistakes at a time? You know, what do we have to learn from these mistakes? Because if you don't learn from this stuff, then you're no better than a, a newborn. Are you, uh, so what I'm hearing you say, you're optimistic about a cultural shift, perhaps. I think, I think I am. I see it, I see it in other, I see it down in Salt Lake in the Wasatch culture that they're, they're pretty good at being like the mea culpa. Um, and, I, and I've seen it at Wysaw this year. I, I think having this storytelling panel at the Abbey Night is great exampling for the community. Look what I missed. And Lisa Reber gets up there and she's like, it's all about these assumptions that I made. I made all these assumptions and they all turned out to be wrong. And I was like, so awesome for you to say this as a recreating public person rather than me as the instructor to stand up there and go rah, 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 rah. So Lynn, tell me a little bit about your kind of worldview on mentorship and a mentee and how you got involved with that. As soon as you you start to be able to squash your own ego and get out of this competitiveness cycle, you start to realize how fabulous it is to work with and to develop other people who have really fabulous skills and who have tremendous potential. And, you know, I was working Knowles instructors courses. I was guiding and I would end up with young guides there to shadow me or team guiding. And I love giving these smart people just a little snippet or a little concept and watch them chew on it and see how they're like, oh, how about right here? How about right there? And it's it's so cool to watch people flourish and to be, and, and, and this is a little high grading on my part, is you watch these, watch all kinds of different people and you realize who you click with, who gets your sense of humor, who gets your input, who then gives it back to you and you're like, huh, I never thought about it like that before. And that's how Diamond has been for me. Who's who's Diamond? I know who he is, but who, yeah. Who, oh, yeah, Aaron in. Diamond. Aaron Diamond, who's, um, uh, you know, he moved to Jackson at 19 because he didn't want to go to college. He was like, eh, college, meh, I don't need that. 
I don't need to pay for it. I don't need to waste my time. I want to go to the Tetons and uh, become a backcountry person. And, you know, he, you want to talk about paying attention? Um, that guy, even at 19, 20, I would see him in the backcountry solo. And he doesn't talk that much as it is, but you can tell that he's, he's always looking. He's always paying attention. And um, so we became friends and turned out we have similar kind of somewhat rude senses of humor that it's pretty fun when that came out. And so I gave him some opportunity writing for me and printed some of his photos and he had already, on his own merits, of course, um, started guiding for Exum only in the winter. And then I, I pushed him kind of onto Nat at uh, Exum, like, oh, no, you, you need this guy. You really need this guy. And dear Nat, you know, he says, well, if Lynn says that he's going to be good, then I'll, I'll, take a, I'll take a chance on him which was great, but then, you know, Diamond comes in and proves himself very nicely. You know, he's he's just himself, and he's funny, and he's smart, and he's very capable, and, you know, he doesn't let me get away with a lot of bullshit. You know, like, I remember he and I and his girlfriend at the time, we got ruthlessly lost in the fog up on the west side of the Tetons, and he was one of the early adopters of, I don't know, Gaia or Caltopo. And he was like, you see where the blue dot is? You don't know where you are. I'm like, oh, Diamond, you're right. And so we, I mean, we laugh about it now. It's been, you know, 10 years. But, and, and so he's become, you know, I learn a lot of stuff from him these days, which is a tremendous in a mentor-mentee relationship. How, how does that learning manifest? Is it more academic type things in terms of observation or is it style of communication? If you're teach, co-teaching a class, what is, what is it you may be learning? I think a great example of that is us working. Um, I'm not sure if it was a pro one or pro two a few years ago, and he gave this it might have even been a rec course, but he gave this slab mechanics presentation that maybe had like three or four PowerPoint slides, but he used like common everyday objects. And I couldn't give you an example. Maybe like, like here I am fiddling with this smart wall, like an elastic band. And he used one of these to talk about um, how failure is initiated and then propagates. And by the end of it, I was like, that was one of the best slab mechanics classes that I have ever seen, and it was completely different. You know, and then he gave one, I think maybe it was a pro two, I can't remember what it was, but he used this analogy of, uh, like a mixing board for music, for sound. And uh, oh, it, was, it was fabulous. And so I'm like, that's great. That's so much better than, than I have done it. And yeah, everybody's brain works differently. 
That's good. Thank you. I'm psyched we connected. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fun to be asked good hard questions by somebody who knows the industry, knows my people. Um, I don't know. I I don't know if I. I'll be honest. Like I, I'm like a pretty like I love doing this. I love interacting one on one or one on two, and um, but I've never been. I've never been like a uh, a belonger, so to speak. I don't know how to really phrase this because I don't want to like put a negative connotation on it. But like, I went to a college where it was like everybody was in a frat. It literally, it was like ninety five percent, and I was like, not for me. No. Yeah, I was just like, no. I'd rather just hang out by myself or a friend on Saturday night or go off to the Adirondacks or whatever it is. It's going to go down. So I don't know. I feel like, especially like going to that ISSW, definitely some imposter syndrome going on for me. And I mean, like, again, I can read and have, you know, I have experience, but I'm not an educator. Um, and I'm certainly not. Yeah. So it's like, I always am like, Ooh, I don't belong in this group, but I can tap into it. And ask them questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean Yeah. I'm happy if we can have a broad reach as an industry. And my focus really is on I, I think it's an absolutely brilliant concept. God love John Montaigne, who's no longer with us, who came up with the tagline for ISSW, which is a merging of theory and practice. And I, I think that my job with ISSW is to be one of those people who helps translate that theory into practice. And I don't say I have the largest brain, but I'm able to tap into people with these large brains and say, what stood out to you? And so I know who to ask, and I know how to take their responses and turn them into something that other people can use. And I'd be, I very much fit into Malcolm Gladwell's communicator box. I'm, I'm the communicator. You know, you asked in your list of questions, you know, are you uh, a trendsetter? Maybe, but I pay attention to what strikes me and what people are talking about. And I try to then flush that stuff out. Like one of the things I love to do with the Avalanche Review is to do these round tables, you know, to have a topic like, is there such a thing as a, an island of safety? You know, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And I bring all these voices together and make it okay to not everybody singing the same song or telling us the same thing. I'm like, yeah, you might disagree with this person, but that's okay. And I try to present all of this in a way that the reader, if they have a little bit of knowledge, can go through and pick. Like, ooh, that resonates to me, but that right there makes me think and makes me question my assumptions. And I, I think a lot about Hegel's dialectic in terms of 
you have a thesis and then especially these days you you get an antithesis no um but here's the process that's most important is that synthesis where we work together and come up with this next thesis and that's why I'm like yeah please stand on my shoulders because then you can synthesize what I worked so hard to understand and use that as the next thesis and that hopefully we can improve our understanding of going one at a time or islands of safety or how to translate this science stuff into how we should behave in the mountains. How's that? Is that, that's a little perhaps quotable, I hope. It's all quotable. It's all quotable. (laughs) Thanks folks for listening and please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and head over to thehighroute.com. You got to remember those hyphens to learn more about what we were up to and how you can be involved. Lastly, the theme music you've heard comes from Albuquerque-based band Storms in the Hill Country from their album, The Self Transforming. We'll link to it on the website and the show notes. Pay attention to the sounds. Pay attention to your dreams. Pay attention to what's all around And everything that's in between And I see my beauty